0: And we
1: are out. recording with Professor Roger Williams. <laughs> Professor Roger has been coming. I'm actually uploading um the entire library to uh, CloudHub and then to, to Brighton, just two free video platforms. So I'm going through. And every time I find a new platform like Rumble or BitChute or Odyssey, and I go back through and upload every episode, I I, I can't help but see like the thumbnails for them all. Mm-hmm. and it's kind of like a weird trip down memory lane yeah. <laughs> even though it's only been two and a half years and then i was just looking back and i was like oh i was like professor rod you've been on here since like the early 100s there's mm-hmm. there's the history of g- or there's gambling in new orleans there's a history of pornography hi- history of vacuum tubes it's going through all of it and i was like professor Rogers has been coming on for a while so
0: um i mean actually i was originally that was what i was here for oh yeah i forgot that was before you yeah <laughs> Before we even started doing readings and stuff.
1: that's You're right. It was the OG, Professor. And for anyone that doesn't know uh, the readings of the curators, we've done 15 episodes on that. Roger's the author of my favorite book, uh, a fiction book about the the technological singularity and what happens when you actually cross the threshold. And there is a copy of it, The Metamorphosis Mm -hmm. of Prime Intellect. I'll put the book in the description. As always, it is available on Amazon and Lulu. It's the same price on both. Roger gets more money if you do it on Lulu, But if you want it on Amazon, it's there too. It's a fantastic book. I think it fully fleshes out what happens past the singularity. And um, it's terrifying and interesting. And it's, Roger... It's a possibility. It's a possibility. And Roger also does Professor Roger, where he comes on here and graciously gives me his time and and goes through either the history or the phenomena or whatever of something. I call it Professor Roger. and um,
0: Even though I don't have a college degree.
1: <laughs> doesn't matter. He's Professor Roger. We're all faking it through this life. And uh, I don't have a podcasting degree. Um, but I texted you earlier this week because I just finished listening to Operation Paperclip by Annie Jacobson, and I'm listening to KL by uh, Nicholas Voshman about the concentration camps. Yes. And the uh, how it, very fascinating book. I've been putting off listening to the whole thing for like two years and I'm finally doing it. About the history of the KL, nothing to do with the war. It's just the KL, how the concentration camps, how they rose, how they documented. Um, I didn't know this. They didn't actually start putting tattoos on people until like 1942. I thought that was something that started from the yeah. A
0: lot of the really outrageous shit didn't get rolling until after uh, we were at war with Germany, and that's why we didn't know about a lot of it until after the war was no. over. Because before 1941, uh, we had journalists over there, we mm-hmm. had regular trade, we had we had tour to- yeah American tourists were still going to Germany in 1940. Uh, it wasn't as common as it was before things got tense but you got to remember that there were a lot of americans who were actually favoring germany in the axis conflict they they wanted germany to win uh they liked hitler they thought they liked his ideas a lot of industrialists like ford uh, prescott bush yeah so uh it was a, a very big sudden change When Pearl Harbor happened and suddenly we were at war with these people who looked so much and acted so much like us Mm. Uh, and the Germans themselves didn't want to be at war with us either. The Japanese kind of stabbed them in the back by attacking us and dragged them into the war uh, because they knew that our natural resources and our population was a serious problem for them if they had. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. And uh, the way that Hitler uh, actually phrased that was he said the Americans have mongrel strength. He thought <laughs> we were a bunch of unbred assholes, but like a mongrel, you don't you don't you don't take your purebred bred dog and let it get into a street fight with a mutt. Yeah, the mutt is probably going to bite your pre-bred dachshund's head off. Yeah. So they knew that getting in, into it with America was not a thing they wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, And that does bring us, though, to a very interesting era in the history of information processing that we haven't touched on, because there are some people who are positively obsessed with the fact that the Nazis were using IBM data processing equipment to keep track of things in the death camps. Mm. And I'm going to say something that is probably pretty shocking of course they were yeah <laughs> it well, would be astonishing if they weren't yeah. uh,
1: everything else they did was so mechanized, and the the killing of the people was so why wouldn't yeah. they? I just realized well, that I know very little about it.
0: well, and the thing is, this equipment was actually not very special. it was extremely ubiquitous, it was all over the place, and first of all, before december nineteen forty one There was no reason for IBM or any American company to not do business with the German government at all. We weren't at war with them. A lot of our people liked them. We were like, hey, in in this dust-up over in Europe, we favor these guys. They look like us. We like their ideas. After 1941 was when it became a problem because now we're at war. Now, the thing is, in the... In certain international trade things, if you think about these machines, I'm going to talk a lot about how they work in a minute, because that informs why they were so ubiquitous and why the Germans would have access to them. They were everywhere. They were used by every large organization in the world that had the means to acquire them and that had a lot of stuff that they needed to keep track of. And they wouldn't have been considered war material. It wasn't like you were trading with the enemy for, for weapons or, or something like that. It was office equipment. You could go back and say, yes, we used the back channel to sell them some tabulating machines. What the fuck? They're not using them to shoot at people. And a lot of people would have bought that argument. Now, by the end of World War II, not so much, because by that time, I think particularly the American military had come to realize how critical things like that are. In fact, failure to keep track of stuff like that is one of the things that's killing Russia in Ukraine right now. But at the beginning of World War II, no one would have thought of these machines as being war critical. They were just they were commodity devices. So but most people don't remember what what they were because computers made this class of machines completely obsolete and no one makes them anymore people have completely forgotten what they look like how they worked every you know everything it used to be in the 60s and 70s uh if you're a citizen if you did business with any large business you saw the occasional Hollerith punched card because you would get one in the mail that you had to forward to someone or mark up or something uh and it would have that famous you know, there was an, everybody knew the famous thing that was printed on all the Hollerith cards that were sent to public, uh, to members of the public. Do not fold, spindle, or mutilate. Now, is that a computer thing or what? What they meant is, obvi- fold is obvious enough. It's a, it's a piece of cardboard about that big, okay? Don't fold it in half, because then it won't go through the re- the automatic reader. Don't wrap it around something like to put it in a tube. And don't tear it in half or otherwise crunch it up or something, because it's the whole, its whole purpose in existence is to go through an automatic reader. And if you mess it up, then some human being somewhere is going to have to take care of making a copy of it that is still flat enough to go through the automatic reader. These things were invented in the 1880s by a dude named Herman Hollerith. He was a United States census statisti- st- statistician. Statistician. Uh, yeah he did statistics for the census statistics (laughs) shut up pay attention uh so he wasn't he was a census worker but he was not like the ones who go around canvassing and going door to door and filling the forms out he was the guy that the governor would come to and say how many house seats are we going to have this year or for the next 10 years what what is our population or something like how many men of draft age with no college education live in our state and what is their total annual income? That's the kind of question that they would ask. So in these days, what would happen is you would turn in your census form. And the first thing that would happen to it is it would go before a key punch operator who would sit at a key punch machine and transcribe it onto a card. So you have this machine that looks like a typewriter has the keyboard, okay? But what happens is a card drops in and as you're typing, it's punching the holes in the card to represent the symbols that you're typing. And that card then becomes the basis of everything else. The census form goes in the file cabinet. and Most likely no one ever looks at it again because the punch card is God after 1890. You can take that stack of punch cards and you can run it through a machine that reads them at the rate of two or three a second and ask it how many of these represent blank and at the end of the run two or three cards a second you get an answer this would take an army of you know secretaries a month to do what this card this sorting machine can do in a day or two so it became the basis of everything it was started with the census it went to other government functions and then it spread into industry Any large industry, they would have a stack of cards, one card for each of their employees, all 20,000 of them, if you're a company like IBM. They would have a stack of cards for all their vendors or a stack of cards for all their customers. That was a database in the years before the night, really before 1970 or so. That was a database. The database was a stack of cards. Okay. This was a very mature technology by World War II. That had been around for 40, 40 years. Okay. Uh, and there were established techniques for dealing with mountains of these cards, Okay, for storing them, for moving them, for putting them in, in the machines and putting them back in storage. The machines could do basic things. Now, how do these machines work? OK, so these were punched cards. So they have a hole in them for each data point and they used what is called, this is a term of art, I am not making this up, a bed of nails sensor.
1: (laughs) Um, okay. Okay,
0: so a standard IBM card has 80 columns of 12 possible holes. That's 960 possible places there might be a hole. So the machine would have a head, the size of the card, with 960 pins sticking oh, okay. Out it. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> and it would go through the machine, and the machine would go, thunk! and while that sensor is up against it, the pins are either pushed back in by the card because there's cardboard there, or they don't get pushed back because there's a hole. Oh. And the earliest machines worked on the very simple principle that you would use a plug board to pick which holes which switches are in series, to say, if these holes are there in the card, then do something with that card. Originally, when uh, Hollerith first invented these things, what they would do is they would increment a counter. That was still big. Later, they could do much fancier stuff. They could kick the card out and turn it into a different pile. So you would end up with a pile of only your draft age citizens. And then you could take that and run it through the machine with different plug board settings, settings and get only those draft age citizens who didn't have a college education. You know, whatever categories you have encoded by these pins. Later, they could do fancier stuff than that. They could stop the machine for a minute and make a copy of that card or maybe a partial copy with some different information that would represent what this card was other than what the original card was. Later than that, when you get into the 30s and 40s, they had machines, they could take numbers and add them that were encoded onto the card. So you could actually say, what's the total aggregate income of all the people in this category? And it could take those numbers and add them up as it processed the stack of cards. it could print reports. They had line printers. And the way those worked was this is all electromechanical. There was no electronics. So the line printer would work. They would have a spinning wheel for each of the like 130 columns. And it runs this fan fold paper through, right? And each of those wheels would spin until it got to the point where Spin, the spin, the sensor on the wheel matched what was on the card. And when all of the wheels stopped spinning, meaning that they matched, thump, it would print a line. And I've seen these printers at work because as I'm about to move on, they ended up being used in the computer industry. And you would see these printers going thump, 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 thump all day long. Okay. They used massive amounts of power and enormous motors and solenoids. They were extremely highly engineered mechanical, electromechanical devices, but they were the state of the art. If you have millions of something that you need to keep track of and you got them from different places and you're keeping them in different places and they're there for different reasons and you have different plans for them then this is how you would keep track of them that was the basic technology every large organization in the world that had this kind of processing requirement had this kind of machinery you look like
1: yeah yeah i know we always have a little bit of a delay so i want to interrupt um who so you said Hollerith was 1880s Mm mm-hmm is that when he was born or is that when he made the cards and
0: No, that was his he filed the patent in 1884. Got it. He was born in the six in the eighteen sixties. No, when And he died in eighteen twenty nine in nineteen twenty-nine really.
1: So let's just so for World War One, were 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 we using these these machines?
0: Oh yeah. Every large by by World War One, every large enterprise in the world that could afford them. Now they were very expensive. Sure. But every large enterprise in the world that had a use for this kind of tracking had these machines. So it they, wasn't... Were, they were not special. They were standard. So they... Th-
1: this wasn't like Manhattan Project. Oh, no. This was expensive, but you could get your hand.
0: Who makes the machines? Well, uh Hollerith had a company that uh, got together in the 1890s with three other companies and formed the Computing Translating Record Machine Company. Uh, And in 1924, they hired a new CEO who thought that he hated the name, so they changed it to International Business Machines.
1: Flows a little better.
0: Yeah. Uh, There were several other players that had different card formats and uh, different specialties, but IBM has... They were the industry leader for these things from the 1890s until the 1970s, when the whole thing became obsolete. Uh, there were others, uh, like they had other card formats and everything, but by far uh, the leader. And uh, like, for one thing, the U.S. government, if you got a, a punch card from a government agency, it was an IBM style Hollerith card, Uh the others were more used internally by big businesses to keep track of inventory or to keep track of their customers and vendors and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, government functions were almost all done everywhere in the world using IBM Hollerith cards. And IBM had a sweet racket going. Uh, until the 30s, they wouldn't sell you a machine. They o- they would only lease it to you. You could not own an <laughs> IBM tabulating machine. <laughs> In the mid-30s, the courts decided that this was a teensy bit of a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act, and they made them come up with a different business model. So after that, yeah, one of the terms of your lease was that you had to buy the cards from IBM. Think about that. They only have to build the machine once. They charge you for it every month. But then you're using gazillions of these stupid fucking cards. And that was a big profit center for all of these companies. They were going through like 2 million cards a day at Bletchy Park to, <laughs> for the decoding stuff. That's like not even center, center front stage of the stuff they were doing. But they had some of this equipment at Bletchy Park doing some of the cracking the code stuff. The... So what they what ended up happening, though, is they started licensing their intellectual property. The design of the card became their currency, the design of the machines. And so there were companies all over the world making compatible equipment and paying IBM license fees. So they were printing the cards and paying IBM license fees for the privilege of printing those cards and for keeping to the specifications and everything well one fine happy day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and your subsidiary that has been paying IBM these license fees for 10 years is suddenly at war in a country that's at war with the United States. So Does that mean you're going to stop making the shit that you're making? Probably not. And, and don't forget, one of the things that you're licensing is the right to put the IBM logo on the side of the machine that you're making. Yeah. So this is why it is totally not surprising that there is IBM equipment, IBM logoed equipment following IBM specifications keeping track of all this shit in Nazi Germany. Oh. Because there were probably factories in Germany making, making. it. Okay. And what's the parent company going to do? Okay. yeah you can't. Obviously go you, than, you can't go yeah. any further than war. You're not going to <laughs> you're, well, you're not going to keep paying the license fee. Yeah. But then if you keep making the equipment without paying the license fee, what's IBM going to do? Sue you? Yeah. You're fucking war with them. Yeah,
1: so, so some people are like that. That's an illegal war crime. <laughs>
0: you're at war. There is no further enforcement. Yeah. Exactly. So, so yes, were these machines being used by the death camps? Of course, they were the bog standard equipment. It would be like asking if they were using electric typewriters or whatever. Like the you Taliban
1: know? used Nokia cell phones. Yeah. Okay.
0: So, yeah, that doesn't mean they were aware of it. It's like, you know, your iPhone can be used to trade in child pornography. Sure. That's obviously not what Apple would like you to be doing with it. Got it. But if you are using it for that, there's not a lot they can do about it either, because anything that they would do to the product to make it less useful for that would also make it less useful for the legitimate purposes that it was designed for. So, I I, had, I find it perfectly believable that IBM in the United States had no idea any of this shit was going down because actually nobody in the United States knew it was going down until the camps were liberated and everyone one went, oh, my God. But like I was saying, if you've got millions of people that you've brought from different places or keeping in different places, they're there for different reasons, and you want to keep track of it all. This was the technology of the day, and it had been. It was a very mature technology. People don't realize how long this had been going on, but these things were, you know, they had been in, in production since the previous century when World War II started, so anybody who had the means to have them had them, and there were multiple sources. Now, they didn't know... When they made the machine, you were going to be using it to decide who'd get Zyklon B for breakfast this morning. But that's one of the things they could be used for. That's just there's
1: uh, I don't know if like one of the most common like trucks that there's like a meme like the, the CIA is getting ready to do something when pallets of weapons, pallets of unmarked bills. And Toyota Hylex is I mean <laughs> it means a coup's happening. And that's just been the that's you always see the same pictures in the Middle East. It's the same white pickup truck. And there was there's actually a a a dealership in Texas. And it used to be not no it's not a dealership, a a, a private, whatever small yeah, business. Oh yeah,
0: they 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 traded their truck in. And it ended up in yeah. Afghanistan with the it, th- it like company Bill, of Argus like, on it. I it saw like, that.
1: It was like Bill's plumbing located in Dallas. I want to say this is like 2012, 2013. And he got traded in and it somehow just in the jet stream of whatever cars, used cars, black ops, deniable operations, this ended up with ISIS. And people saw it, saw pictures of this thing on like Facebook yeah. and they were like, Bill, I never knew Bill supported the caliphate. <laughs> and he had he said that he had to like hire his like son in law just to deal with the calls every people mm. were canceling contracts because they're like, I don't support a caliphate. And he's like, I what the fuck are you talking
0: about? company that i work for is absolutely fanatical about making sure the decals are removed from any vehicles that we sell because of that incident Gee, that's and i remember
1: that used to be i think i like screenshotted that article and that used to be the background of my laptop in college because it would make yeah. me laugh so hard whenever i saw it um but so my own my own arrogance ignorance i thought ibm was a german company i never knew that was nope. a, that was a,
0: they were american well so that, that's there the were,
1: basis of my misunderstanding there
0: were four companies that came together to form ibm i'm not sure about the other three but uh Hollerith himself was definitely an american he invented the machines for the american census and a lot of the companies that came into the business were in fact european because they were you know this was very high tech for the time mechanical and electromechanical engineering and they had it you know a lot of people who are really good at that stuff but the basic idea was down to Hollerith, the u.s guy and uh ibm has always been registered in the state of new york they moved from new york city to some place upstate uh in the early 20th century uh but uh yeah that's uh, that, that whole thing is very american so that
1: and, and i guess there's more irony there's more poetic irony in yeah. that than we'd like to admit i mean you now he
0: argue, was a Dutch. He was a Dutch immigrant.
1: You could argue a lot of the <laughs> Third Reich was funded by America, right? DuPont was a. Uh, Didn't mm-hmm. uh, Remington
0: weren't did they involved in like floating the the Third Reich? Yeah, it gets a little, it's yeah. a little there. But yeah, I, I mean, I've always found it a little amusing that some people are so obsessed with the fact that IBM equipment was used in the the death camp it's like, basically, the American prison system also used it. Now yeah. they weren't killing people deliberately, but you know, it was uh still just uh just a teeny sliver on the wrong side of maybe the line between good and evil. But uh this is what that machinery was used for. And before the camps were liberated, even if you knew it was being used to take keep track of prisoners, again, that's not out of line because gotcha. that's they, they were used for that in the united states and yeah. everywhere else too it's you know uh but what was different about it of course was nazis and the yeah. actual uh well who's going to go to the ovens this morning and well, <laughs> yeah no you i mean one I get,
1: <clears throat> again my own ignorance i didn't even know i always thought it was i guess i've just seen it written in german is like international like business, like machining or something. I just, I always thought no. it was German. Well, they had,
0: I mean, it was a natural thing for German companies well, to sure. get into because well, that was, that was their wheelhouse was making precision mechanical things like this. So uh, it would be very surprising if there weren't a few German subsidiaries making equipment for them. That, that's one of the things that they prided themselves on in, in, in Germany. Uh, there were actually companies all over Europe, in fact, all over the world who were using and making this machinery, who were printing the cards, who were doing all this stuff under licensure to IBM. And there were other companies too. There were a few others, but none of them were as prominent as IBM. Uh, you wouldn't recognize any of their card formats as readily as you would that 80 column card. That uh, I, I, I used to say, well, everyone recognized an IBM card if they saw it. And I guess that's not really true anymore because the I wouldn't. Yeah, uh, but it used to be one of those things everyone had seen one because you would get one in the mail from the government and have to go turn it in somewhere or, or, or whatever. Uh, that's how everything was kept track of. Uh, of course, that was until computers came along. Mm-hmm. And this is where the tale gets more interesting to me, though. So after the war, computers are starting to become a thing, and we talked about this in the big data talk. How originally computers are mainly used to solve mathematical problems because they didn't have enough memory to handle text. A computer that could hold all the information on a Hollerith card in its random access memory was not a thing that even existed until the late 50s, early 60s, and Then they were very specialized. But the thing about the computer is that it could do in one step what these sorting machines, these tabulating machines would take. You would literally have this dance, this choreography of taking stacks of cards from one machine to the next in order to do ever more elaborate processing with them. But with a computer, you could just read the stack of cards through and have all the processing done, and make a new stack of cards. No one-stop shop, right? But what you did have was the cards were not necessarily an optimal thing to be uh, an input/output data storage device for computers, but they were because it was an existing mature technology. Like I said, the it was a simple, straightforward matter to take a tabulating machine and turn it into an input device for a computer. It was a simple thing to take a card punch and turn it into an output device for a computer. It was a simple thing to take the same handling arrangements, the trays, the the file cabinets, the the, the, uh, tools for moving stacks of cards around. All of these things existed and it was a mature technology before the computers came along. So it was just a matter of taking the readers and punches and marrying them to the computer, and you still had all of this existing technology for dealing with the cards. Only now you could do a lot more with them because instead of this simple electromechanical device that you're running the cards through, you're running them through a computer that can do really wicked, complicated stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's why punch cards are associated with computers i am just old enough to have had to use a key punch machine to make Hollerith cards because when i took computer science intro in 1980 i was part of the last class that my university had where we had to do our assignments by making punch cards at the little typewriter that made the cards put a rubber band around it hand it in at the desk come back an hour later and get the printout from our program being run. And if it said error in line 72, then you did the whole thing again. And that was how I took intro to computer science in college. It was such a pain in the ass that I did all of my assignments on my home computer first in basic instead of Fortran. And then I converted them to Fortran because it was such a pain in the ass. But that Was the state of the art throughout the uh, pretty much through the mid 1970s? It was finally starting to eclipse around 1980. Uh, In the it was around 1960 that they started moving a lot of that data onto magnetic tape instead of hollerith cards, and that's because the tape is more compact, it can be reused, unlike the hollerith cards that okay. We had to make a new set because this one has the a field wrong. Uh, you could do things like sorting. You could do more complicated stuff much more quickly. Uh, and then, of course, in the 70s, disk drives. Uh, there were disk drives in the 60s. They were very specialized esoteric research devices. The world's first Winchester hard disk was six feet in diameter and had a capacity of five megabytes
1: i've seen i've seen (laughs) pictures of i've seen them loading it onto a i think a plane it
0: was vertical format yeah so it it looked like this enormous wheels
1: yeah i've seen pictures. yeah it looks like Um, a looks like an early a bomb
0: and these things used massive amounts of electricity and power and just like they could rip you from limb from limb if you got too close to when the safety uh devices didn't work um you may have heard of the series Halt and Catch Fire uh, which is a cable TV series about the early microcomputer industry. Well, it's it's actually pretty good. It's uh fairly uh true to its historical facts, but it fictionalizes a few things. And in the series intro, you know, in in the uh the introduction to each episode, the the usual thing, they have the voiceover mentions the existence of a computer instruction called halt and catch fire, which would stop the program and cause the computer to catch on fire. Well, that was fictionalized. The reality behind it was that there was a Unix error message. For the Unix operating system, there was an error message that read, printer on fire. And the reason for that was these line printers that I just that I described to you with the spinning wheel, the 130 spinning wheels, and they would spin really fast, stop when they stop clomp, and then go and do the next line clomp. And they had a ribbon, the width of the piece of paper. And of course the paper itself, all of which is flammable. And every once in a while, the ribbon would catch and it would stop advancing. (laughs) And because they were dumping so much energy into it, Within a few seconds, it would catch on fire. <laughs> so, there was a sensor for this, <laughs> and when that sensor actuated, the printer would issue this error message that would be displayed for the operator. That would say "printer on fire." <laughs> oh, Lord, yeah, uh, yeah, things uh, you know changed an awful lot, and, and you know, and again, no, that's probably not the best way to do it. For one thing, those printers didn't have lowercase characters. Uh, and you could also see little jiggerings in the position of the characters on the printout because they were operating so fast yeah. that they didn't really register the vertical position of the character that accurately. They yeah. were just more in, you know, to get it on the paper and then get to the next line. Gotcha. All of this was redone in the 70s so- to using more more reasonable techniques.
1: So it seems like these machines are, because as I asked earlier, I was like, who builds the machines? How do you even make something that complete? And then I realized like, well, it's really just a, a birth from the the industrial revolution and like mm-hmm. textile from like wooden looms to yeah. like metal. So it's really, if you want to go back, you had to go back 200 years before like the hauler. Yeah.
0: In fact, if you look, if you look up punched card, you'll see everyone starts their article with the Joaquin loom which the looms used punch cards to define the weaving uh, patterns. Uh, so. so what Holler, Holler didn't really invent the punched card. What he invented was the punched card as a storage for data, as opposed to a control mechanism for a machine.
1: Got it. Okay. Uh,
0: so, yeah, this was all the kind of stuff that was becoming everywhere at the end of the 19th century. Uh, and it was all mechanical. It all involved really clever mechanical engineering. And uh, the electronics was mostly just as a bunch of switches in series or not. Uh, they, like I said, they mostly were programmed by a plug board, like the old telephone exchange. In fact, that was a technology that was invented for telephone exchanges and adapted to this whole thing. But it's not there was no microprocessor. There was no computer in there. but what it was was when the card was read by the pin the bed of pins sensor if the right switches were in series they would make a circuit and that would tell the machine to do something different with that card than it would with the other cards that didn't make the circuit that's all it was mm. everything else about them though was material handling
1: just in just very intricate
0: handling the cards moving the sensor in and out moving the bits, you know, moving the cards back and forth. Okay. That's all mechanical. That was all these machines were. And that, again, that's why there were other companies making them. There were no tremendous secrets involved to how they worked. Uh, okay. I got you. Hey,
1: Roger, I'm going to go grab a blanket and use the restroom. It's your it's your podcast.
0: Okay. Um, as Tommy mentioned, this is his... Favorite book uh, about humans going past the singularity and uh, interesting things happening. Uh, if you would like a paper copy of it like this, then I encourage you to get it from lulu.com, l-u-l-u.com. You can get it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of the usual suspects. It'll be the same price. But if you get it from Lulu, they're the publisher of origin and they give me the money that would normally go to Amazon and the book distribution chain. So, and it's a big difference. It's like $6 instead of a dollar 50. So on the other hand, if you've got a gift card or something and, you know, or you just uh, you have prime or whatever, go ahead and get it through Amazon. Then Uh, I get by far, most of my revenue from this, from Amazon, just because so many people do business with them, and also, if you want an ebook version, uh, particularly for your Kindle, but even any of the others, that doesn't matter there uh, those you know, in fact, there Amazon is pretty much the publisher of origin for your Kindle version, uh, so that's fine too. Um, the uh, The cover of the Kindle version is different. My wife said that one doesn't thumbnail very well. Uh, But anyway, that's the plug that I usually do when Tommy is off doing whatever. Um, This turns out to be a rather interesting topic, though. I've got another thing that I want to go into. The transition from pre-computer to post-computer stuff involved a lot of pre-computer stuff in the post-computer era. And uh, that's one of the things that kept computers so expensive for the first couple of decades is that they were using all of this hyper expensive office equipment. And it took a couple of decades for the industries making more reasonable equipment to get up to speed uh, to become as mature as those pre-computer data industries were. So, uh, you know, people were still using the stupidly expensive crap that was, you know, you needed a data center for in the 1970s and uh, the need for it had pretty much disappeared. But the problem is that those those machines were in production. They were readily available. There was infrastructure to support them. You know you could get the ribbons and the fanfold paper and the cards and all that stuff and it took a while for other technologies to become as well established so that you could get the materials that so that they could be serviced and all this could be done with them uh, so it was like in nineteen seventy five or six uh my dad ordered a Printer for his lab because I've, I've mentioned several times that my first computer that I had access to was the HP 2100 mini computer in my father's physics lab at Southern University in New Orleans. Well, they couldn't afford any of these massive scale printers and shit. So they, they my dad ordered a Heath kit, it was like $450. For a nine pin dot matrix printer that would only print on fanfold paper uh, but that was a technology that was just becoming established. If you had a large enough company to afford the old school stuff that's what you bought because that's what you were familiar with. you had people who could work on it, you had vendors you had suppliers the new stuff had to get up to speed before it could become the basis of an entire industry. Uh, laser printers didn't exist. Xerox machines did, and they worked by entirely optical techniques. <laughs> so it took a while for for people to figure out how to use uh, that technology to make a printer instead of a copier. Uh, all this was going on in the 70s the transition from old non-computer tech that had been glued onto computer systems to, com- to stuff that was more appropriate for a computer system, especially when microcomputers came along. Because none of this big shit was appropriate to a computer that you could put on a desktop. And those existed starting in the early 70s. The, the HP 2100 itself was a mini-computer. It used a lot of electricity it was the size of a dorm refrigerator it cost forty thousand dollars but it also sat on a a lab you know basically a on a a lab bench uh it didn't take up like a rack you know with you know the data center stuff and the floor that you could pull with all the cables and stuff that was
1: the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards
0: Anybody who wanted one could have a pretty darn capable computer that plugged into your TV set and you could actually do useful stuff with it. Uh, and you're not going to have a $100,000 line printer for that $600 computer. Now, having mentioned all that, there is another technology that is completely unrelated that went through the same trajectory, and that's paper tape. I
1: think you, I think you've actually read my mind because uh, the question I was going to ask before I went, I tried to find a blanket, I couldn't find it, and I realized it was in the dryer. So I'm an idiot. I was looking around for it. I was like, the f-. but I was going to ask, and I think this answers my question: is before the jump in the 70s, at any moment in the prior 90 years, did the cards undergo? transformations like more than 960 pins or like did and then i think you're answering that with paper yeah the
0: the actual ibm format card that everyone from a certain era would recognize was uh this designed in 1926 so it was a standard that existed 10 year you know 15 years before world war ii started and it became pretty much the world standard for public use because it was the IBM format. Like I said, there were others that predated it, that had fewer columns. A couple of them had more columns. Uh, They had some more specialized functions that they were designed to encode and all, but for the, the things that you would see if you were a member of the public and your government or your bank or your car dealership gave you a Hollerith card, It was going to be an IBM format card with the 960 potential, you know, hold positions. Uh, But paper tape was a completely different thing because that was originated for the telegraph industry. And it's even older than the cards. What? Yeah. So when they started laying telegraph lines, let me see something here. I made a couple of notes here. When was that? Okay, yeah. So the Baudot Code, B-A-U-D-O-T, that's a guy's name, okay? Uh, He patented that in the 1870s. And the purpose of that was if you have gone to the trouble to lay a a cable at the bottom of the ocean or to string a cable across the country, uh, you don't want that cable to be idle. So this romantic thing that you think of... You don't want it to be idle. You don't want it to be idle. You don't to just be sitting there not transmitting data,
1: not making money,
0: right? Not okay. not doing anything.
1: Sorry, I thought you meant like physically not moving. I was like, that's exactly what you want.
0: Well, they don't move it, yeah. But but you you didn't Sorry. want it sitting there not actually being in use. I'm a moron. Sorry. <laughs> so you you have this romantic image of the guy at the telegraph office sitting there with the clicker and the Morse code key. Yeah sending messages for people. That was true for about five minutes. Honestly, uh, one of the first things that happened was uh, this guy, oh, Emile Baudot, French guy, invented a different encoding, not Morse code, that can be more easily sent and read by machines. Uh, It's what they called an asynchronous serial code. And the idea was that, Instead of a human operator sitting there punching out the message, which means you have these delays where you're not, you know, know, you're, you're thinking about how to do the next character and all, you would use a machine to send it. So you would get the maximum speed. And what you would have is you would have, just like you have the key punch machine that makes cards, you would have a teletype machine that you type in and makes a paper tape that has holes in it representing each of the characters that you typed. Baudot was a five-bit code, which meant there was five holes that represented each character that you typed. And it could represent the alphabet, the numerics, and a few control codes like end of line. So you would sit there, you wouldn't actually have a human being on the line sending a message. You would have the human being at the teletype machine composing the message and making a paper tape and when you were done you would give that to the operator and he would queue it up so that when the last message finished that one would start no delay that way you are maximizing usage of this line that you spent millions of dollars to build it's
1: so like i was telling roger beforehand sunday is like sunday is the day i clean my apartment i clean the sheets from my bed and um and i move all this week's podcasts to an external hard drive that i put in the gun safe and those are all things that i just have to start and then they run and each of them on their own maybe takes like an hour. But so, like, today's Sunday. So, the first thing I do when I get up on like any other day where I just immediately go to the gym is I go grab the hard drive, I plug it in, <laughs> drag and drop 300 gigabytes. I rip everything off the bed instead of making it, dump it all in the, the dryer or washer and put it on like heavy duty. Um, And then I'll normally, yeah, I'll normally like open the door, open the porch door and let like fresh air in because I know I'm about, like, I'm going to be like, cleaning with like disinfectants those are all and it takes like an hour for it to like passively you can feel the temperature going up and it's just because trying to get all the you know get some clean air in here but those are all things that i just have to start and mm-hmm. then i go about my day now it's all going on in the background so that's kind of it except with the profit mo- is that
0: yeah uh, well, yeah, it I was, heard? yeah it was entirely profit motive because the more messages you can send over that line you you spent a certain amount of money to build, build that, that line. line and if it's an undersea cable it was a lot of money yeah so yeah. every millisecond that that line is not transmitting data is lost money yeah so this was all part of making sure to minimize the unused spaces in the lines timeline so that you were always using it to send data and not having it just sit there and go, what's the next character? Uh, So this technology was even older than Hollerith cards. Uh, In the 1960s, in fact, right around the time I was born, the uh, American Standards Institute, ANSI, decided that Baudot was a little dated. And they came up with a new code called ASCII, the American Standard Code for Information Interchange, which is what we largely still use today. And it was a seven-bit code. And they often sent eight bits so that the eighth bit would be an error-detecting bit. Uh, They would arrange that uh, the eighth bit would make sure that the total number of on bits was either odd or even. And if that wasn't the case, then you would know something went wrong and you didn't get the right character. Uh, That standard uh, ended up becoming the the basis of like the model 33 teletype machine, which you see in some of the early James Bond films, uh, which you see like uh, all of news services used. And again, it was, you know, telegraph lines. You would have the news agency sending messages back and forth and at the heart of it all was paper tape, a teletype machine almost always would have a tape punch reader. It would have eight bins that could sense the tape to see what it is, and that would allow it to type the character. So you could take the tape and put it in the reader and run it, and the teletype would type the message so a human being could read it. Mm-hmm. Or you could sit there typing a message, and it would make the tape. That was the basic purpose of a teletype machine you could connect the teletype machine directly to the transmission line to have it print messages as they come in. That was done, but you would almost never use that teletype to send messages unless it was like some kind of screaming emergency where you didn't have time to make a tape and put it in the reader and let it go at its maximum speed, which at the time was about 10 characters per second. Uh, So That technology also got co-opted for computers. When my dad got the computer in his physics lab, the interface, the the human user interface was a Model 33 teletype machine. So that computer was interactive. So we could sit there typing shit into it and the computer would be receiving what I typed and acting on it. But I could also run a tape. Like, you know, I could have it type my program out and make a tape of it so that when, after they finish using the computer for something else, I could put my program back into it, or I could have the computer uh, send the output to the tape to be printed later or used in some different ways. And again, not optimal. Uh, there was a lot of infrastructure, but because of the, the telegraph industry, the tapes were standard. The readers were standard. The punches were standard. Handling mechanisms were standard. One of the things I remember is that you would have like the basic interpreter, fairly long program. It was eight kilobytes. All right, That was a roll of paper about that big in diameter. An inch thick, Yeah, you know, one inch tape, about four inches in diameter. It looked like a roll of electrical tape, only a little bigger. Only it's not Adhesive, so heaven help you if the middle falls out of the roll. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And we had a little machine which actually started life as an electric pencil eraser that you would normally put an eraser into to erase things, but we had a reel for it that was designed to roll up inch-wide paper tape. So you would take the tape, put it around it, hit the button... And just spool it up, and you would see the roll growing as it comes off. So you would actually put, you know, when we got the optical reader, the the tape would just fly through this reader and end up in a giant puddle on the floor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we would catch the end of the tape and then put it in the winder and suck up the puddle of tape on the floor into a into the yeah. roll on the thing. It's like that was that was like totally standard, man. Uh, Again, this was equipment that you wouldn't have in your home. Each of these machines cost thousands of dollars in the early 1970s, but they existed. They were established technology. They were mature. And so the the handling for the tapes, the tape itself, all of this stuff existed. It didn't have to be designed from scratch, from the Thou- ground up.
1: Thousands uh, of dollars in 70s dollars?
0: Yes. All right. The computer was $40,000 in 1974. And it didn't have a user interface. Talking about something the size of a dorm refrigerator. It had, I think it had eight kilobytes of RAM when they first bought it for that. And it ran at 175 kilohertz, not megahertz. It had magnetic core RAM, which was kind of cool because you turn the computer off. And then come back two weeks later and turn it on; it would pick up running whatever program it was running, just as if nothing had happened. Just like, you might you might lose one character that was yeah. in the buffer and the going out to the teletype machine, uh, but it weighed about 150 pounds, and it cost forty thousand dollars. And you couldn't use it for anything unless you also bought some peripherals. I'm so gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I always
1: love pulling up inflation calculators. Um, <laughs>
0: 1974 $40,000. Oh yeah, it would be hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. today. Um in
1: 1974 I purchased an item for called it 40. The same item would cost, it doesn't make sense. It would cost $29 now. I
0: think you did something
1: wrong. <laughs> oh no, 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 sorry. It would cost 240. Yeah. So forty is so a quarter million dollars today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it. But you got to remember too—you're talking about a machine that weighed nearly two hundred pounds.
1: Oh, it's I not. Mean, no, it's not even like it's like a fit gaming PC now. It's like no quarter million. So there—that's another whole form of inflation. Not inflation, but yeah. Like, well,
0: that—that's the Moore's law thing
1: coming. Yeah, in. it's like um, if you look up Carnegie and Rockefeller's net worth. They were both worth like $350 billion. No, Rockefeller's worth $410. But there's all this whole other level where you have to go look at the cumulative size of the US economy. Mm-hmm. And if you and then if you calculate that as a fraction of the economy, it's the yeah. equivalent of I think I think Rockefeller would be right now, would be I want to say it'd be something he'd be worth like six point one trillion. Yeah. In terms of relative
0: because, like, because of a percentage of the overall GDP. So what you
1: you we think about like a Musk and a Bezos now? And all of a sudden it starts to make sense when you go, yeah, JP Morgan bailed out the government. You go, oh, <laughs> oh, I get it now. Right. It'd be like if Musk was worth thirty five trillion. You go, oh, um. before I rudely interrupted you. Um, question about the so it's not that like paper tape replaced punch cards. It seems like that's more of a pecuni- it was used for a different function. It's like uh, communication.
0: Yeah, well, it had different strengths, and I actually both cards and paper tape were used to store programs, but they had different strengths for uh, being processed later when you read them back in. So cards could do things like being kicked out and restoreded and all. Paper tape was linear. Uh, paper tape was more compact, though, for doing things like you know that basic interpreter you know, eight kilobyte program on a roll like that, that would have been a stack of cards that high, you know, okay. Maybe even taller. Gotcha. The cards were very well designed for uh, data, for data, you know, for data where you would have a line of data per card. The, pa- the tape was better for random linear information, such as a computer program or, uh, you know, a stream of data. Uh, again, these were things, they came from different original uses, and they were adapted for computers because they existed. It was easier to adapt to those things than it was to come up with something new that was more appropriate for computers. The first thing that came around that was new and was adapted more for computers was magnetic tape. And I know that you have seen pictures of old old movies where you had the big tape drives the two the reel to reel tapes and the thing and of course that was something that also previously existed because of audio recording but it hadn't been used for data before could it be said that not
1: perfectly but could you almost use it could you almost use them together? Like you have data on this end for the IBM. Oh, they did. And you're like, I like I. will edit the, I'll edit and and export the video using my iMac, which can do it a hundred times faster than like YouTube could. But then I'll I'll go upload it on Bitshoot, and you can watch it on Bitshoot.
0: Yeah, that was exactly what they did. You would Got have it. a data processing center. Got it. And there would be a big computer at the middle of it. Okay. But there would be all these different peripherals that had different strengths. And it wasn't really until the 1980s that it became common for one of those peripherals to be a terminal that you would sit at and interact with the computer in real time because that's wasteful. Every moment that that computer is waiting for you to type the next key is a moment that it's not doing something. So you had multitasking. This is what drove multitasking operating systems. So you would have 20 of these terminals waiting for people to punch the next key. And then meanwhile, while they're waiting for the next key to be punched, they would be doing other tasks in mm-hmm. the background. So that just like the telegraph line, that CPU is never idle. It's never just sitting there waiting just for somebody eat, to do some money. Yeah. Yeah. Now today we're used to that. You know, in the in microcomputers, it was very common to turn the computer on and it would sit there in a little loop waiting for you to punch the to type the next key. But that's because that was a five hundred dollar computer and not a forty thousand dollar computer or a four million dollar computer or a billion dollar computer in a data center. So uh that is, you know, in in fact, the really modern computers like these actually are going back a little bit because they spend a lot of their time doing stuff that we're not aware of when we're not actively doing something. Uh, in fact, a lot of the times what they're doing is inimical to our interests because it's something Microsoft or Apple wants or some malware yeah. or whatever. Yeah, And yeah. we don't notice it because the computer has got all of this free time on its hands if it's not dealing with us that it can be doing other stuff. Uh, in the 70s, every Yep, you used to pay for your computer usage by the instruction cycle. Jeez. They would literally have a dedicated part of the computer that kept track of how many instruction cycles each account Good used Lord. That's because...
1: like it's like getting charged by like Ubisoft for like like frame like frame rates used in like a game of Ghost Recon.
0: It is. It it was exactly like that. The, ori- uh,
1: the original microtransaction.
0: Yeah, and and that is, that's one of the reasons for some of the math goof-ups uh, that I've explained to people because uh, they don't teach finite math anymore. And you have single precision math, which is absolutely crap, uses four bytes to store a number. Uh, the number is good to about one part in a million in the Mantissa, you very quickly reach a point when you add one to the number, nothing happens because the floating point number has gotten to where it can't represent one anymore because of the exponent. Then you have double precision math, which uses eight bytes to represent a number. And that's got plenty of precision. You need to almost, that works well for almost any real world problem. The problem is that when these libraries were written, you had to pay for your computing time by the cycle and it takes four times as many cycles to do a computation on a double precision number. So one of the things they don't teach in floating-point math anymore is that the fraction 1 divided by 10 in binary is infinitely repeating, like the fraction 1 divided by 3 is in decimal. So if you're using binary math, which most modern computers do, then 1 divided by 10 times 10 If you don't round it off, it's going to come back as 0.9999999 out to the point where it got truncated. So you have to round off your result. Otherwise, it don't look right. And the noobs who learned after the 1990s don't realize these math routines were all written in the 1970s. And when they wrote the floating point, when they wrote the single precision routines, they knew they were crap. So they automatically round off. They keep extra bits and they round off after every step. But the double precision routines were a lot more expensive, literally more expensive to, to run. So they figured you would probably want to wait until you had done a series of calculations and then tell it to round off yourself. Well, that assumes you know that you need to round them off. <laughs> I have seen some absolute clusterfucks because young programmers did not know that just because you were using double precision math doesn't mean it's going to come out right if you don't take some precautions. Is there not any like
1: automatic safeguard put in that would just cut it off as opposed to saying 1 divided by 10 is zero point one zero 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 zero?
0: There there are now, mainly because so many problems happened from that in the 90s and aughts. So like, you know, JavaScript and the more modern languages, I think they're doing that now. But for a while, it was just like, no, this is C under the hood and it's all, you know, this is how it works. And if you don't know that's how it works, you're going to get into trouble. And so people got into serious trouble. I mean... You have a scale or a cash register, something like that, that people expect to be exact, and the pennies don't add up. Yeah. People, people don't like that. Don't <laughs> like when you fuck with the money. So, uh, yeah, we have a scale that's counting by point two. and every once in a while you get an odd number in the least significant digit. People notice that. It ain't yeah. right so that was one of the things that happened
1: yeah don't don't round up when i'm getting gas don't round up and assume i got nine don't don't tell me i got 10 gallons when i got no fucker give me that extra tenth of a gallon yeah
0: it's like what happened to my extra tenth of a gallon here it's like oh no it's really there it just got truncated and you know yeah rounded down
1: so yeah yeah go buy go buy a 12 pack and tell me if you're okay with getting 11 beers yeah Uh, the, the fuck you are well, you getting,
0: got 11.999 beers, you I'm, know? Well, no,
1: sir, I'm getting properly shit-faced. Tonight. There's a I'm, scratch
0: just, on the 12th can. <laughs> fuck right off.
1: But, <laughs> yeah, okay, that makes sense then. Um, another question, back to, like, the cable... What, it, for the paper, the paper trail, the telegraph, what's the speed? What's the speed of the message along the, the cable? The,
0: stan- the standard, when it was all electromechanical, was 110 baud, which is about 10 characters per second.
1: No, 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 I mean like between two geographic points
0: well it's the speed of light
1: it's the speed of light okay well that's that's (laughs) that's where i figured the default whenever i'm not sure i i assume it's that i just wasn't sure like if it was
0: yeah it's not like it takes time for the message to get from there to here that 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 wasn't an issue until satellites i
1: okay i got well it's just like yeah it's well sometimes it's not things like you think of like the human nervous system yeah some people just go oh it's speed of light no your nervous system moves at like I want to say it's like oh yeah, it's a lot slower. It's like 600 meters a second, which is fast when it's going from your your nose to your eye, but in terms of actual speed, it's slow as shit.
0: No, uh, the limit on uh, telegraph systems is generally capacitance in the lines, which causes them to be a little slow to respond to changes, and that limits Uh, the. It doesn't limit the speed at which the signal reaches its destination, but it limits the time it takes to reach the potential at the I, other end. I got so, you. So yeah, you can get you know the signal reaches there essentially instantly, but if you try changing it too fast and sending too much data then it starts to get garbled. That's so that was the head, limit.
1: that's such a head fuck. Mm-hmm. Like in the 1870s and 80s they were using speed of light technology.
0: Yeah, well it's called electricity. Well, yeah, well I know, but you,
1: you and I, we don't think anything of it, right? It's just like of course it goes that fast. But that's yeah. there's no other there's well, no... that
0: was that was taken for granted that radio and electric and electricity went at the speed of light, and it that the idea that there was a uh latency didn't become an issue until, until our
1: hyper connected world of yeah. well,
0: until satellites. Yeah. Because the time it takes a signal to travel halfway around the world is pretty insignificant. Yeah. You know, it's like a hundredth of a second, but the time it takes a signal to go to geosynchronous orbit and back yeah. is a significant fraction of a second. And if you're trying to uh, use that to play a game, then you start to notice it. Yeah. or And, and where it really became noticeable was during the Apollo missions uh. when, They did not get a good picture of the lunar lander taking off until Apollo 17, the very last chance. And part of the problem is that there is a three second delay between signals coming from the moon to the earth and going back to the moon. So you've got this poor sucker. I've read the story about how they pulled it off to get that shot the money shot of apollo 17's limb taking off and tracking it as it rose the guy pretty much had to practice for weeks knowing that what he's looking at is not not, that happened three seconds ago (laughs) oh whoa (laughs) and and he's here basically programming the uh the servos that are on the lunar rover and its camera that's what captured that video And, you know, so he's trying to, and it's like, and I think they tried it on 16 and it didn't work. And so, you know, it was like, but, you know, they didn't have the automation they do today. Nowadays you would just program a computer to do it. Yeah. yeah, But they didn't have that in 1974. It's kind
1: of like in the, there's this game I was playing on my Xbox last year. I think it's just called Battleship or it's really, I mean, you're really just kind of, you know, you're going from like mm these 1880s Battleships. I mean, it's a great, (laughs) it's not like a top that's like a great you know immersive 3d you know hdr great fucking great <laughs> physics. but it's fun because you, you get up to where you get the, the final is like you finally grinded all these hours you're getting man i might download that game i'm actually hold on i'm gonna make a note of that i think i'm gonna <laughs> download i forgot about that i was playing it right when i moved into this apartment but you finally get up to where you're at like the IO class and it is great because you can turn on different difficulty levels to like if you're just playing easy like me you can like you can kind of just go God's eye view across the map and see where, whatever the German yeah. ship is. But as you play more difficult, it's all just about like where you're getting hit from. So it's like you can like see there's like an artificial trail on like the shells. So mm-hmm. you see them. And like, so you're like, we got to start turning now to miss it. But at the same time, you're like, where did that come from? I got to fire back 18 miles, which means it's going to take 10 seconds to hit it. So you're like, which actually means I got to. I got to lead it by this much. But by the time I'm seeing them, that means they've already. So there was this weird double thing where you're mm-hmm. like, lead them and then lead them again. And every once in a while, it would be like direct hit. And it was just yeah, total that was dopamine hit.
0: One of the things I was I was thinking about. Uh, I ran across when I was. Putting together the ideas for this talk is gunnery tables.
1: Yeah, th- because... that's where the first computers were. For, yeah,
0: and those were analog computers. They, yeah. they weren't, they weren't Turing-complete computers, but they were purpose-designed to solve the equation for if you fire it at this angle and this speed and this propellant charge and this weight of projectile, where is it going to land? Because in the heat of battle, you don't have time to solve equations and shit, and yeah. they didn't have calculators then, so they would have pre-calculated all of these yeah. things. So your captain would roll it out and tell you the range, and then you would use these gunnery tables to figure out what to do with the gun to make sure the shell would hit where you thought it needed to. If, in, during World War I, it was all eyeballs. Yeah. And at the beginning of World War II, it was mostly eyeballs. At the beginning of World War II, the Germans were dragging their artillery around with horses. Yeah. And that was true through half of the war. There is a a really interesting uh, book uh, titled Soldat, German for soldier, uh, by one of the German soldiers uh, who was just, he was a, a, uh, an artillery gunman who, he was promoted to an officer like two days before the end of the war, and he got captured by the Russians. Oh, um, but he got very, very lucky, and he ended up getting out of the pow camp in russia and getting out of east germany just in time and eventually made his way to the united states in the 60s and wrote this book about his experiences and that was one of his big things so the first half of world war ii for him being an artillery guy half of it was taking care of the horses yeah in germany yeah and he said it was a major change when they got motorized artillery because it's like you, before you would spend hours taking care of the horses feeding them grooming them doing all of this horse care shit but with the motorized artillery you just turn the key off go to bed get up the next morning go back turn the key on and you're on your way and that was a huge advance and this was fucking germany it's yeah. like you know, they're, they're famous for all the jet engines and all yeah. this shit and all and in 1940, they're still dragging their artillery around with horses in a lot of the theater. So that's so insane. And, and, and it pointed out that we probably would have been doing it too, except that it wouldn't have been practical for us to ship horses from the Americas to Europe. So we had to come up with something else. And we did. So, yeah, yeah because we had to. Yeah. The Germans didn't have to. They had. What are we talking about? an established infrastructure that was based around taking care of the horses, but it existed even though something better was possible doing the something better would take time. It would take more investment. It would take training. It would take, you know, all of this investment they didn't have time for. So what did they do? They sent their guys out with the teams of horses, dragging cannons around. That is basically what was happening in the sixties with computers is they were taking all of this expensive hyper-specialized shit from the tabulating machines where that was the only way to make these things. And they were adapting it to computers, whereas the computers could really do things uh, that were much more subtle if they needed to, but the infrastructure wasn't there for machines that were more efficient and less power-hungry and less noisy and less likely to catch on fire and shit like that. So uh, that... That, that, was, that whole era was a transition where people had an image of how computers worked, say, in 1970, much of which had nothing to do with computers. It had to do with this office equipment technology that the office equipment was going away because you weren't going to spend $100,000 on a tabulating machine if you could spend that same $100,000 on an actual computer and it'd be much more versatile and capable. But you were using the same I.O. devices because they were in production. The supplies were available. The maintenance was available. The technicians were trained to work on them and so on and so forth. And it took close to 20 years for that to shift over to more appropriate things.
1: It's you know, It's one of those weird things where... Yeah, Annie Jacobson talks about it in her book, uh, The Pentagon's Brain, about DARPA. And yeah, how they, the computer comes, that's what they called the people because they computed the gunnery tables. They are uh, a well, computer.
0: Before World War II, computer was not a machine, it was a job description.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, and then, yeah, it goes in at John von Neumann. And then they were yeah. like, hey, he's got this idea for a computer. They're like, let's use it for gunnery tables. And they're like, we got a, we got another idea. And it was to do the generations uh-huh. of, of atoms during the the fusion, hydrogen period. bond, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's kind of wild thinking about like the horses or even the punch cards. In World War One, we used uh, uh, peach cores because they were suitable enough as a form of filter for gas masks. They weren't mm-hmm. perfect, but in terms of mass production, so there's it's this the weird, muscle, yeah. So there's this weird thing where all of a sudden, like if you could grow peaches, like you were now like a, an <laughs> asset of the military industrial complex. But it's, it's just weird because then you also go back, Richard Rhodes talks about it in his book Energy, how like big, mature forests were were like guarded by like soldiers in like 17 or 16, 17, 1800s Europe or uh, England because those were used for ships for the Queen's mm-hmm. Navy. So it was like that's that was big. There was no like National Park shit. It was like that's that's the, that's that's yeah, like that's, trying that's, to an area, that's Area 51 like bullshit yeah. you're going in there. We don't know yeah. are you a foreign agent? Are you going to go spike it with salt or something? Like that's a military resource. Yes. Fucking wild. Roger, I got to pee again real quick and then uh I can still run for like another 30 minutes after this.
0: Okay.
1: All right. Well, I've I been uh, I normally don't drink a monster during the podcast, but I did. And it's just <laughs> running right through me. <coughs> hmm. Not that you asked and not that anyone else asked, but you know,
0: it's what it, is it is what it is. It is what it is. Um uh, okay, so I uh already suggested where to get my book also uh, all of the other stuff that i've written including the curators which i am currently in the middle of reading for tommy uh when we're not doing this kind of episode uh is also uh, available through my personal website local roger l-o-c-a-l-r-o-g-e-r dot com it is free uh if you don't mind reading it through a web browser uh some of it is available from Amazon as ebooks. Uh, a couple of things are also available, like Mopy as paper printed books, not as much of it. Um, but uh for a long time in the early in the aughts, uh I wrote fairly prolifically for the discussion site corrosion.org that's spelled K-U-R-O digit 5 H-I-N uh because the site's founder was named rusty foster and it sounds like corrosion Uh, and uh, it was a very interesting and vibrant community until it kind of fell apart in the teens because uh it was invaded by trolls and uh it was sort of an experiment in free expression and it turns out when you let people express themselves freely without any kind of moderation they turn into assholes so uh the people generating quality content, including myself, eventually sort of either drifted away or stopped producing the content. But in the heyday uh say from two thousand through two thousand seven or eight, there was some really fantastic stuff there, and I am proud to have been the author of some of it, and some of that is available on my website, so check it out
1: yeah, I'm right it is.
0: Um so what was the
1: what was the final push or metamorphosis if I do say <laughs> of of the punch card and the Hall of Earth machines to it became disk drives what what was the what was the jump what was the jump to, how does it
0: the original Uh, Well, it started to move, it moved to paper tape in the early 60s, uh, paper tape, to magnetic tape rather, because magnetic tape can be reused and uh, it can be processed in different ways. In fact, if you take an older computer science sources actually had sorting algorithms that can be used with magnetic tape as a specialty, because you can't do random access, but you can read and write little segments of it right there. Uh, so there were whole there was a whole discipline of data processing around using magnetic tape, but then it switched to discs, and the first practical discs, uh, magnetic discs, started to show up in the late 60s and early 70s. And they again they were stupidly expensive. Uh, I had a fun experience, which we can go over some time. In the late 90s, one of these early disc drives went. Someone donated one to the Goodwill store in Covington. And it showed up, it's the size of a washing machine and probably weighed about 300 pounds. And it sat there for a year with a price tag that said $250. This was a machine that probably cost close to $100,000 in 1974. One day, at, well, it was after Christmas, I went to the store and I saw they had crossed out 250 and changed it to 15 And so I looked at Elaine, and I was like, I can't resist. So I got out my 15 bucks, went to the desk, and then I went to the U-Haul place and spent $30 to rent a trailer so I could get it home. Good Lord. (laughs) And I spent the weekend taking it apart. Unfortunately, they didn't have YouTube then, or phones with uh, uh, video cameras in them, so I don't really have any records of it. I still have some of the parts. That thing was so... Massively overbuilt to support what they called they it supported what that what they called a layer cake disc. Sorry, it had a replace it had a removable disc cartridge that was the size of a cake. It had like ten layers, ten discs, and it had this head that went back and forth on a ball bearing roller glider, and what moved the head was this voice coil about that big in diameter and about that long the magnetic winding that was inserted into this permanent magnet that weighs 70 pounds (laughs) and this was all and that was just the mechanic oh and it had an optical uh glass uh track uh thing that would read which track it was positioned on uh so that the electronics could tell when it had put the head in the right position. And it had a capacity of 80 megabytes. And like I said, this thing probably cost around $100,000 in the early 70s. And I just took the thing apart. And it was like, I still have, it's like I have a bench over there that's made from some of the side panels because they're all steel. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a few of the parts that I kept just, I, I have the magnet one of these days i'll drag it in like i said it weighs 70 pounds
1: don't get it too close to the
0: computer it's not it's it's not like it won't be a problem yeah for one thing this computer doesn't have a disk drive (laughs) so there's there's some
1: so there's some real like craftsmanship to the there's some real there was it was awesome punk industrial kind of craftsmanship
0: there there was it was an enormous amount of mechanical engineering went into building this stuff and once they got it to work then it started to shrink yeah so by the end of the 70s you had first you had eight inch floppy disks in the mid 70s then you had five and a quarter then you had three and a half inch floppy disks which became the standard pretty Mm -hmm. much through the 90s and yeah uh, then you had hard drives the original one was like, looked like a submarine, an accessory for a submarine. And those started to shrink until I had one that was manufactured in 1984 that was 10 megabytes and it weighed about 15 pounds. It was a self contained external assembly. Uh, I've then, got 100 terabytes right here. Yeah. That maybe weighs
1: 10 pounds.
0: The technology has just. Gradually improve, why, because the infrastructure gradually became mature for those technologies, and they started to improve, so that moved us away from these less perfect things that had been adapted from a completely different industry with in watch machines yeah the the telegraph and the old you know and the uh unit process equipment technologies where price didn't matter what mattered was that it was reliable and that uh you know know, because you didn't care how much it cost because of what you were using it for if it replaces 10 employees yeah it doesn't matter if it costs a hundred thousand dollars they're moving away from that to things that were more affordable for individual people or for desk stations uh the ibm pc was a big leap mainly because It was what convinced industry that desktop class devices had a use in industry. Before that, everyone in the industry had the mindset that you had computers in the white room with all the air conditioners and the technicians and shit, and you had terminals out where the operators were on their desks. IBM introduced the idea that you could have a fully functional, self-contained computer on someone's desktop as a business device not as a toy
1: there's some beautiful symbolism there of yeah. like martin luther <laughs> moving away from like the the again dare i say like the curated few that could read the latin and and tell mm-hmm. peons what god was saying versus like nah just let the pigs read the bible they can figure it out <laughs> right duncan Trussell always says these. like throughout human history we just have example after example of a of a bunch of cunts wanting to guard the information <laughs> from the rest of us. And then they say it's for our best. And then once we figure it out, once it gets distributed, society makes huge leap forward, huge leaps forward, and nothing bad really happens.
0: Well, I don't know. I look at the modern evangelical movement and think that something bad might have happened. But listen, listen,
1: listen, you can't win. You can't win them all, Rod. So we have iPhones and we can put together this podcast. There are also mm-hmm. people exchanging child porn like yeah. it, you know, for the most part, though, I'd say it's probably a good move. So, again, you almost have this like romanticism of like, oh, you know, back when things were, you know, you look at like an old castle made of stone and it's still fine or just like, yeah, those old, those old like world war one battleships and they're just ornate and beautiful and sure things are cheaper now and they break, but I would almost argue but, that it's better because the, I mean, a farmer in India has an, has a cell phone.
0: Yeah. Well, and also that, yeah, that, that old shit that was built like brick shit house also cost a fortune. Yeah, So only uh, someone like Elon Musk of his era could afford one.
1: Or Carnegie, or so in the yeah. same way, it was the same gatekeepers.
0: So, yeah, so, so that's sort of the thing it's just been democratized. We're now, you know, that was the thing in 1980 when Radio Shack and Apple and Commodore came out with computers that an ordinary individual could afford. Uh, the TRS 80, Radio Shack, the Commodore 64, Vic 20 before that were kind of toy like. They were very noticeably plasticky, not very durable, They, but they were computers. The Apple II was a little better made. It was more, it could stand, it, it could pass for a business machine a little better than the Radio Shack and Commodore ones could. But it was IBM that came back, you know, came through with, we want the keyboard to feel like a Selectric typewriter keyboard. Mm-hmm. That was one of their design goals. And so if you have one of those old Model, model M keyboards, then it's like it feels exactly like typing on a Selectric 2. And it's it will a- absolutely if you have a roommate, you will end up getting defenestrated because they will throw you out of the window for all the sound that it makes if you use it at night. <laughs> this
1: is this is my gaming keyboard. <laughs> All right, you can hear this versus like my Apple Space Age. Of, well, I forgot. Oh fuck! I'm using this computer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah the uh the original the original, ga- the the original...
1: computers off. That's why I smashed the keyboard. I completely forgot I'm recording the podcast on here. Yeah. <laughs> start pressing buttons.
0: The original IBM PC keyboard uh used springs and mechanical contacts and was itself was over a hundred dollars in 1981. Jeez. So, uh, but IBM wanted that machine to look like a business device. In fact, if you look over my shoulder here, that is the case of the original IBM PC, the Model 5150. Uh, that one had several different mainboards in it uh, before the form factor changed and I abandoned it, but I couldn't bear to get rid of it because that case weighs at least 10 pounds. That is a that is a piece of office equipment circa 1980 that you know it's made of steel (laughs) and yeah no compromises it is an absolute piece of business office equipment god there's this book uh (laughs) called a
1: dirty job and it's about it's this weird thing about like i don't know like ghosts on earth and if like a family member died not important. It's a great book. But there's this description in there of a of a car from the fifties that's mm-hmm. making me think of what you just I have to find it. Hold on. Roger I, I used to
0: own Man. I I used to own a nineteen sixty six Cadillac Fleetwood that I bought from one of my neighbors for five hundred dollars. And that car weighed five thousand pounds. Dirty job. I know because I put that car on a truck scale. I work for a scale company everything on that car was made of solid metal
1: um
0: the clock in the dashboard weighed at least 10 pounds keep
1: holding it down roger i've almost found it
0: it yeah uh that was but the thing the other thing though is that those cars weren't engineered as well as modern cars as far as keeping shit out of the passenger compartment in an accident and it's funny how the uh the modern car that weighs half as much is actually safer in an accident than those things were.
1: Okay, I found the I found the the, the whole book's not even a, it's a good book, but whatever. The nineteen fifty seven Cadillac Eldorado Brom, B R O U G H A M was the perfect show-off of Death Machines. <laughs> it consisted of nearly three tons of steel stamped into a massively mod, high-tailed beast lined with enough chrome to build the Terminator and still have parts left over. Most of its long, sharp strips that peeled off... Most of its long, sharp strips peeled off on impact and became lethal sized to flay away pedestrian <laughs> flesh. Under the four headlights, it sported two chrome bumper bullets that looked like unexploded torpedoes or Triple G Madonna death boobs. It had a non-collapsible steering column that would impale the driver upon any serious impact, electric yep. windows that could pinch off a kid's head, no seatbelts, and a 325 horsepower V8 with such appallingly bad fuel efficiency that you could hear it trying to slurp liquefied dinosaurs out of the ground when it passed. It had a top speed of 110 miles an hour, mushy barge-like suspension that could in no way stabilize the car at that speed and undersized power brakes that wouldn't stop it either. The fins jutting from the back were so high and sharp that the car was a lethal threat to pedestrians, even when parked. And the whole package <laughs> sat on a tall white wall tires that looked and generally handled like oversized powdered donuts. Detroit couldn't have achieved more deadly finned ostentatia if they had covered a killer whale and rhinestones. It was a masterpiece. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh much of that applies to my old Fleetwood. Uh it did have seat belts, but they were lap belts, so I never wore them. Uh it had leather upholstery. The the upholstery was still beautiful. Yeah. It was this aqua blue, but the outside paint job had oxidized. So it looked beautiful after a rain, but when it was dry, it looked like this car can't possibly have insurance. And uh they had gotten rid of the fins by then. The fins were understated, but yeah, the headlights, same deal. All of the headlight hardware, the turn signal indicators were not on the dashboard. They were out on the, on the fenders and the turn signal indicator sockets. You would pull up this cast pot metal assembly that weighed two or three pounds out of the fender. That would be, where the light bulb was for the turn signal indicator for the driver of the car. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it, was, it was nuts. Uh, and we drove that car for years at a 429 V8. Uh, the suspension had been fixed by then. That car could go 110 miles an hour and it was smooth as glass. Uh, I drive across the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway fairly frequently. And the old span that was built in the 50s badly needs to be leveled. Uh, so you're going vroom, 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 all the way across. That car was absolutely smooth. Like, but yeah, there were stories of people who had that car who got a flat tire and didn't know it <laughs> until they <laughs> stopped eighty miles later, uh, which I believe. And uh, I eventually got rid of it because it only got thirteen miles to the gallon. Yeah, but you. it but it was great to drive. The other thing was the way it was styled is you could back up to a, to a wall, and you could back that car up to within one inch of a brick wall and not hit the wall and just know exactly where you were. Because the top of those fins, that was the back of the car. Mm. You, could, you could see exactly where it was. Same with the front of the car. It was 22 feet long, and it drove like a compact car. 22? It wouldn't fit in my driveway. It wouldn't, it wouldn't fit in my garage. 22. It was too long to fit in the garage in this how, house. How long is like a suburban? Uh they're more like eighteen, twenty-two. Yeah, oh, Lord. And the That's awesome. The trunk stuck at least five or six feet out past the rear wheels. Oh, yeah. And one of the reasons it handled so well, though, is Just... like I said, I put it on a truck scale. I had a job one day at the sugar but... refinery in Chalmette, and I had I drove the car. And it was three axle truck scale. So I drove the car onto the scale, put the front wheels on one platform, the rear wheels on the other. They were within one count. They weighed 2,500 pounds each. Yeah, probably perfectly balanced. It was perfectly balanced. Every other car I've ever driven, it's like the, the, the axle that the engine is sitting on weighs Three times what the other axle does, and that's why they fishtail all over the place if you hit ice or something. Yeah. That car was a dream to drive, uh, but it was also just massive. And there's no way that you could justify building something like that today. And like the guy said, if you were in an accident, non collapsible steering column, you had you had a steering column through your heart. That's just and he doesn't even mention. <laughs>
1: A lot of this before the advent of safety glass.
0: Yeah, I I think that the Fleetwood did have a safety okay. glass windshield. I know okay. it had hardened glass windows. Uh, so that was one of the things, though, because it was a '66 and not a '57. So that was about ten years later. So they were actually improving it, but you know, the priority was that was a heavy fucking car. You did not want to be in a compact car and get hit by that car. And everyone knew it. My my wife loved driving that car yeah, because tank. she would go to merge into traffic. She said one time he, she was merging in and there was this guy in like a souped up little pickup truck. And he took one look and hit the brakes and let her in. It
1: Absolutely. Was, it's a single. it's a, The I people mean, would cringe. It really is. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like indicative of just like the wartime industry of World War II America. Like we just kind of pivoted and started making yeah. APCs for the nuclear family.
0: Well, it, it was like computer equipment in that era yeah. with all these heavy ass parts and precision <laughs> machined guides and stuff and all to, to process data. Yeah, because that was all, that was how we the only way we knew to do it. You know, this is this is all that existed before there was computers. And so when we did start building computers, that was how we were building them with these techniques that were familiar and they were very stupidly expensive, but there were customers for them who could afford them. So that's what, what we did until people came along and said, we can democratize this. We can actually pare this down to something a lot more reasonable because information goes at the speed of light and it doesn't weigh anything. There's no reason that information has to have a 500-pound disk drive to process it. So, so
1: okay, you can do it. I got nine more minutes. Um I guess kind of to maybe segue out of this, this one. What in your estimation are we going to be looking at? All right. Cause I was born in 1990. I remember late 90s computers, but to me, they weren't really fundamentally different than they were. They were slower with less memory. And where we are now is okay. The screens are flat. You yeah. know, you can put it in your pocket now with an but still kind of like there's a screen, there's an internet, there's programs. But you saw person. an actual, like an alchemical change from lead to gold. Like you saw punch cards and vacuum tubes turn into where we are now. What are, what is going to be my version of that when I'm doing a podcast in 20 years? Like what am I, I, is there going to, what's the next jump up of where I'm going to be like, I remember when it was the metal and plastic thing that I had on my desk. (laughs) Can that, can you even guess what that would be?
0: I would say uh, that we are at a mature a, a mature point where the user interfaces the the way that we interact with the machine is probably not going to change significantly until we have something like brain machine interfaces or true artificial general intelligence where we can just tell the machine what we want it to do and not worry about how it gets done because it won't do something stupid uh these are uh, both holy grails of certain very rich people that could easily be mentioned. Uh, I don't think that Meta's vision of the Metaverse is going to happen anytime soon because the whole thing of wearing the goggles and all that is not practical. Uh, now, there is a little short film called Sight, S-I-G-H-T, uh which is kind of hard to find in search because its name is so generic, but it's a fictionalized account of uh, in the future, you your eyeballs can be outfitted with displays that superimpose things on your field of view and interface with the internet, which is much faster and everything. So you can walk into a house yeah, that, Yeah, and and, uh, almost everything you're looking at, all the shit on the walls isn't really there. It's being put there by your eyes and superimposed according to the guy, you know, the person whose house you're in has defined it that way. Oh, okay. And uh, so so it's seamless. Uh, And of course, the end of the little short is that uh, there's a downside to that too. Because it can be misused hmm. uh so that's you're 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 trusting elements of your own consciousness to machines that you don't actually have any control over or understand and that introduces some really metaphysical problems
1: do you think that do you think this is going to be like a a, a generational thing like uh my dad always points out you know to him it's always if i say like uh you know oh, i talked to my little brother today yeah you know my dad would always point out i'd be like did you talk to him and to me i'm like in my mind i'm like yeah, we're texting he's like that's not talking and to me i'm always like <laughs> to me i'm always like what's the difference like hey i talked to dr malone yesterday how'd you talk to him well i emailed him and I, you know i said to me that's talking like you and i mm-hmm. to me this is like This is as in depth as I get with people, is honestly. And, but to my dad, it was, it's like very, it was like, did you like hear their voice? And I'm just like, no, I I can't. But to me, I don't think anything about it because I've grown up with that. Even, yeah, even AOL Instant Messenger in middle school. Do you think we're, this is going to be a generational thing where I have this like weird sort of, uncanny valley when i look at ar and uh and uh ai and i go augmented reality ar vr and ai augmented reality virtual reality and artificial intelligence where i go i'm going to be the old person i'm going to be the old man on the block that doesn't have it
0: oh yeah that's uh i i think even today's kids who are in their uh who are preteens and early teens you're going to find that your experience of the world is very different from theirs Yeah, and yours is very different from mine obviously uh i mean i've had people ask well what radio station you know what do you do when you're driving to work it takes me almost an hour to get to work and to, you know and then another hour to get home and people you know and i tell people well, a lot of times i don't even turn the radio on you know or i'll turn the radio on if it's the top of the hour and listen to the news and they'll turn it off because i don't want to hear all the assholes who are calling into wwl and they're like, well, what are you doing? It's like, well, for one thing, I'm driving the car. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a full time job, isn't it? Uh, but th- to them, to not have constant Simulation. stimulation, they're not used to that. No one ever uh, trained them to deal with not having a constant stream of stimulative input. Yeah. And that's going to be really interesting when these guys get to be job age or join the military and they're going to find out that there's long periods of just being there and waiting for something to happen and you can't necessarily spend the whole time doing this with your phone that you know there may be reasons that you can't and there may be reasons that it would just be a bad idea, even if you could. And, I mean, I've got, I'd say about half the people that I work with can't eat lunch without a phone in their hand.
1: Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> and,
0: yeah. And I find that bizarre. And, and in fact, there's people who have called and complained about me. Roger is being incommunicative. I've, I've tried to call him, and he didn't he didn't pick up. Well, that's because my cell phone was on my desk, and I was in the bathroom. Yeah. Or I was walking to the back of the building so that my eyes don't fix focus three feet in front of me because I'm watch, looking at a monitor all day and I don't take the phone with me when I walk away from my desk. And there's people that I work with who simply can't understand that. And it's like, what is wrong with Roger? Yeah. I'll he doesn't have, have his phone with him.
1: I'll have people. I answer my emails. There's one, There's a one hour window a day that I answer all of them. People will be like, yeah. I emailed you back. And I'm like, uh, well, or, hey, I, I'd love yeah, to avoid you I, at 11 o'clock. My phone goes on airplane mode after I call my mom around <laughs> 8 p.m. Eastern. It yeah. goes on. I might text Roger now and again. Like, but no, it's off. You you don't just because yeah. technology exists doesn't mean that. You get I don't
0: it. bother. I don't bother turning it off because my phone stays here at the end of this wire. Yeah. It keeps it charged. Yeah. And this office. Is on the opposite corner of the house from my bedroom. Perfect. So this phone can make all the noise it wants at 2 a.m. It ain't waking me up. Yeah. And that's been the case for, well, I didn't have the phone in 1992 when I moved into this house. But ever since I got the phone, that's just like, and there are people who are just like, what's wrong with Roger? Why isn't Roger answering his phone? I, I, I emailed you two hours ago, man. It's like. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I tend to check my email in the morning and I usually check it in the afternoon before I leave work. And sometimes if I happen to be sitting here and the phone goes off, then I'll pick it up. Like when you texted me and asked if I could do five o'clock instead of six, I happened to be sitting here sure. and I was like, oh yeah, sure. No problem. But if I was at the other side of the house, I might or might not have caught that. That's yeah. just That's my habit with the phone. It's not a part of my body that I can't you know, I don't feel like I'm suffocating if I don't have the phone. <laughs> my uh that's one thing I do is why I don't keep
1: social media apps on my phone is cuz I Oh, they're designed to cultivate that well, idea. Well, it keeps me it it, uh, it actually makes me put my phone down more because I'm like I'm not scrolling through something. And I mean that's why I meditate every day. I think it's really important to just cuz there's also like a weird almost a tolerance you have to build up cuz it's not just that oh I want to be entertained. You do it long enough and you actually you start to feel uncomfortable when you're by yourself. And yes. To me, I'm like, to me, I'm like, that's not a good thing to, that's not a good habit to develop. Is I need no. stimulation. You need to be okay with first the first like thirty seconds of meditation are always actually kind of scary because I'm like, who mm-hmm. boy, I'm just sitting here, but really it's under
0: a minute and that goes away. And then and you that, and that and that's good because there's a lot of people out now, particularly these younger kids, who no one has even told them that was a good idea. Their parents have just gave them the phone because it's a perfect babysitter, yeah, just shut up, yeah, just here here's the phone, shut up, don't bother me, and so they've never had to calm themselves to figure out how to exist without something composite. I mean like literally I've been at the lunch table, and there's ten people there, and six of them are doing yeah, okay, oh, I, yeah. oh I'm
1: guilty, I'm guilty. <laughs>
0: I'd that's, never do that. It's like my, my, I never take my phone to the lunch table. That's to me, that would be like ruining two experience.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I guess that ha- that's one of the things that like has driven me is I used to always listen. I'm, I got to run because there's a guest waiting, but yeah. I used to always listen to music working out between like 2004 when I started and probably up until like, probably like 2020, and I finally realized, I was like, I'm at the gym for like an hour, walking to, workout, coming back, shower. That's like an hour block a day that I'm listening to something. And I love mm-hmm. listening to something. takes my mind off of the workout. That finally, about the time I started the podcast is when I decided that's a perfect time to listen to an audiobook. At least mm-hmm. get something out of it. So that's one thing I try to do. I'm like, I don't keep Reddit on my phone. I don't keep anything, nothing. The only apps I keep on my phone are the apps that I use to post the podcast on like getter yeah. and parlor, but I don't use them because they're shit and no one's on them. So there's nothing, nothing pulls <laughs> me. I have to take Twitter off because Twitter is great. It pulls me in. Um, But
0: yeah. The, yeah. I mean, I have, I have a couple of coworkers who are addicted to podcasts for that same reason. They can't stand yeah. silence. So they've learned that the podcast is more interesting than music that they've heard a hundred times already. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. It, it's, And and that's a general, but I think that the the generation coming up after you, the people who are in their preteens and early teens today are having a much different experience than even you did, uh, much less people my age. And that is going to color how they interact with machines in a very general way, uh, in ways that will seem very strange to both of us. it's hard to say exactly how at this point because that's the whole why do they call it the singularity because you can't see what's on the other yeah, side it's, it.
1: you're, yeah.
0: it's uh, um, but yeah it's it, it's definite that there's going to be a difference in how they see that there's they're already a lot more willing to put up with shit that people your age and my age look at and go nope it's Absolutely like, not. Yeah, yeah, and and they're more like, "What's the problem?" You know, it's like, "Oh, so they know everything about me." Well, big deal. I know, you know. You got it's, nothing it's, to hide. Yeah, it's like, woo, <laughs>
1: baby. Yeah, it's uh, well.
0: I think a lot of them just got a big fucking wake up call, though, because I don't know if you uh, you saw. Uh, Michael Moore was on Bill Maher's show on Friday, and he and I made the same observation without knowing that each other had done it, which is uh, that there is probably going to be a blue, not red, wave in the midterm elections. And a large reason for that is Dobbs and the re-illegalization of abortion, because a lot of people who have taken it for granted their entire lives that this was not going to be a problem, have suddenly found out that things can change. And every single election that has been held since Dobbs has had a six to seven point swing toward Democrats, even what's, when the Democrat lost. What's Dobbs? That that was the That decision. was the case. That was the case that overturned Roe versus Wade. Gotcha. Okay, gotcha. So since that, every single election that has been held anywhere in the United States has swung six to seven points toward the democrats
1: Interesting. even
0: when the democrat lost interesting, they lost by a lot less than they did the last time there was an election in that venue and it's obvious that mitch mcconnell has already uh resigned himself to the fact that he's not going to be senate leader mitch mcconnell
1: is also a chinese mole that guy should be in guantanamo he's a turtle his wife's Father, yes, the chairman oh, of the yeah. board of yes. the biggest industri military industrial defense contractor in China. Yeah.
0: Now the thing is the House is generally considered more uh conducive to crazy people getting elected because it's easier to find a concentration of crazy people the size mm-hmm. of a house district mm-hmm. than it is to find a crazy people of an entire oh, state. Yeah. But e- there, there are a lot of people who are starting to realize that they they are not expecting even the house to flip, even though okay. all of the old models would say, "Oh yeah, sure, there should be a red wave. It's a midterm. Midterms always go against the sitting president, and the, the Democrats were barely hanging. They they barely had a, a majority, so they're obviously going to lo- That's not no. There's ever more serious people who are thinking no because." You have all of these crazy shit house rats getting winning their primaries, and they have no chance in hell of winning a general election, mm. except in the craziest of the craziest of districts. And there's a few of those crazy districts that will reelect Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert, sure. but there's not a lot of them. Sure, you know, and so. It's gonna be interesting, but I was really interested to see because I made that assessment. You uh, did on here, yes, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and and I'm 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 kind of sticking by it. And I was very interested to see Michael Moore because Michael Moore was one of the three people who predicted Trump would win in 2016.
1: Yeah, no, he yeah he did. And he wasn't for it. He was just like, this is what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. He has his ear to the ground and he is not the kind of person to give you happy talk when he thinks something that he doesn't like is going to happen. Yeah, he's he's yeah, going he's, to tell you a,
1: yeah, like him or not. He's,
0: and he's not he a was guy. he was on real time basically saying, no, I think this time it's going to be a Democratic blowout because you have a bunch of people who have suddenly been woken up yeah. by stuff that is happening. And they've realized that politics can affect them. And voting is free
1: interesting um i was gonna say uh on a final note of such a bad um but letting this guest wait there um my my buddy in college used to say when people this was back in 2013 they'd be like i texted you last night he would be like what time they'd be like 1105 he would be like i come to your house tonight at 1105 and start banging on the door (laughs) you answering that door No, you're fucking not. (laughs) That's what I've always picked it as. I'm coming in. If I'm banging at your door one in the morning going, do you want to do a podcast tomorrow? You're calling the cops if I'm lucky. Like, so that's one thing. (laughs) And the other thing, like, I'm a bad salesman. I'm sitting here telling people, turn off the audio. You don't need something. What am I doing for a living? (laughs) Listen to my audio. But I'm telling you, hey, turn it off. Meditate. Find some peace.
0: it's, It's truth.
1: Yeah, it's because i love i love podcasts when i'm driving i love listening to something like tim dillon but man sometimes i'll i'll do a 4 hour drive nothing just just quiet just observing yeah just obs- it's there's peace in there
0: if, if if you if you want to find a story or something then you have to make a space for it to appear
1: yeah oh i like that i like that that's a quote i saw another great one yeah i know Happiness is always available to us, but it's, uh, have you created a space for it to flourish? Mm -hmm. It's there. Yeah. It's there. That's what I love about. Yeah. Driving quietly. Let your mind wander and then it will pick up on something. And next thing you know, you're going down versus if you're just perfectly placated from the second you wake up to you go to bed. It's, it's sure. There's not a whole lot of anxieties, but there's also, there's no adventure.
0: you're never here you're you're not actually doing something you're just absorbing shit
1: yeah you're just a diaper (laughs) well this person's probably gonna blow their i take care of your guest i know i got i'm gonna i'm a fucking terrible i'm a terrible host um roger williams i love you as always we'll start next week with uh readings we'll get back to it book three um, you're gonna
0: like you're gonna like book three a lot of dramatic shit is going to happen in book three. Beautiful. Not as much world building because we've already done that. Well, much like the
1: Nazis with IBM, we've already got the infrastructure laid out. Yes. Not sure if that's the best pitch, but you know what? <laughs> Can't ring a bell. It's out there now. So, Well, <laughs> we'll figure that, it out. On that note. <laughs> All right, Roger. Hey, I'll talk to you when it's up and we will resume <laughs> next week.